This is the Pain Information Network, and we're on 19. Well, thanks for coming back. Uh, this is the 19th episode, right before Christmas and the holidays, and a tough time for some of our patients. So we just want to spend a few minutes today, Andrea and I, talking about the the troubles that some of our folks go through, and and we know it, we feel it, we see it. Uh, that it's not always as bad as it looks, and we want to help you get through and look to next year is a really good year. It is going to be a good year, and we're going to expand this uh, network to include fibromyalgia and some other pain problems and and hope to offer some really good information. And this show is a, is a fun show because we, we are getting your questions in now, and we're getting to answer them. Uh, we're, we're not giving out medical advice. We can't do that. But what we're doing is we're giving information. So... Um, please, if you have some questions, go to paininformation.com, uh, shoot us a couple, a couple lines and go to iTunes, leave us a little bit of feedback. It helps. And we'll, we'll try to get these, uh, questions somewhat answered in a, in a reasonable period of time. It's, um, it's, it's fun because we're all on the same page together. We're seeing many of the same questions uh, from different folks, and I hear them in my practice. Uh, a lot of uh, same type of questions, a lot of the same type of complaints. So we're going to address them. And we're also going to talk a little bit about um, <laughs> the jeweler junk uh, stuff that is very interesting today. Andrew's got a fun take on that. And over the next couple of episodes, I'm going to start talking about my pain is blank, blank, blank. I'm going to help understand the process of not only diagnosing, uh, that's one of our rules, but treating and helping us all understand that uh, we're more common than not. Um, And finally, uh, we're going to talk just a bit about controlled substances. I know that this was a very popular episode when we did controlled substances. I want to get back to it, but it's going to be small bits because this is a tough, tough uh, subject. But I think we handled it pretty well today. So let's get to it. Once again, I'm uh, happy to have Andrew Trescott on board. A little holiday uh, word or two for those suffering from pain. I, I know it's a time of vulnerability, and it's a time when we want to reflect on the good and the bad of the past year. And sometimes it's more bad seeming than good. But I can I can tell you there are some defenses we have. We have some very um, good ideas uh, that I hope we can convey to you today to maybe get you out of the house, maybe get you to socialize, maybe get you to move around a little better and just feel a little better about the season. Because I used to call these the evil months, uh, January and February, because they were always so dark and down. But Andrew, you're up there in the land of uh, <laughs> the real dark and down. But, you know, the positive is you have Aurora Borealis. I mean, find something good when it looks so bad. Um, but anyway, happy holidays to you, Andrew. Happy holidays, Hans. And you're absolutely right. We're down to less than five hours of sunlight a day. And yet on the radio, what happens is every morning, 
I listen to the sun will rise at 10 o'clock in the morning and it will set at four o'clock in the afternoon, a total of five hours and 32 minutes, a loss of. And what's been happening is over the last few, the last couple of weeks, we've been losing five minutes a day, four minutes a day, three minutes a day, two minutes a day. We're down to less than 30 seconds (laughs) a day. And on the solstice, on the 22nd, it will be no loss. It's the equal day and night. And after the 22nd, what will happen is every day there will be a gain of more. It will be a gain of three seconds, a gain of 23 seconds, a gain of 70, 57 seconds, a gain of one minute, 22 seconds. Again, and, and it's fascinating to watch that pendulum swing. So I know that in two more days – that it will be the worse it will be, and everything will be um, moving toward that twelve to to fourteen hours of sunlight that we get in the summertime. Awesome. So I now have that as my goal, and I can focus on that, and I can I can mentally watch that pendulum swing. We are almost there, and I tell my staff, I walk in and I'll say, "Okay, one minute thirty four seconds." And they and they laugh because they know exactly what I'm talking about. That we're almost there. And as I said, right now we are under one minute of time lost and about to turn to positive. That's really great. You've seen the Northern Lights, haven't you? Up there, I have not as spectacularly as I like because um, most of the time I've been too close to uh, the um, city to lights. city lights. Yeah. But it is. One night we looked, we saw them just right outside my apartment window wow. in Eagle River. Um, so they, I get an aurora alert, and the um, oh. there are some places that it just has to be timing a clear night. And of course, the clear nights are the colder nights because the 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 locals dread the cold, the clear nights because the, it gets cold. But just some spectacular displays, just a, a light show. I I describe that it's a little bit like watching um spotlights when there when there is a a distant spotlight going up in the sky and it's reflecting on low level clouds and you see this sort of shimmering light that 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 comes up and disappears and comes up and disappears and it's it's sort of this shimmering very fluid sort of um light display i've only seen the green so far but we're um, moving into the time now when the more spectacular displays start so yeah, they're spectacular really- aren't they uh, when i was a kid growing up <clears throat> i was in the mountains uh, colorado and they had a huge hit uh from the sun and i actually saw them i actually saw them and I could say from that day forward, that's on my bucket list to get back up there and to take pictures of the northern lights. Uh, I know it's cold, though. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to today. Um, and uh, first of all, thanks for coming back on, Andrea. Uh, a little side note for everybody and our listeners is uh, Andrea was in charge of the World Institute of Pain uh, training course uh, that we just attended and and she did a fantastic job coordinating every aspect of that uh international meeting of uh world renowned physicians was tough and not only that it was an incredible educational experience and not only that it was in multiple languages good job andrea good job <laughs> thank you hans that's very kind of you well let's talk today a little bit about uh, some of the questions that have come to me over paininformation.com some of our listeners questions and let's elaborate on 
on some of their thoughts because I hear these in my practice as well. So I'm going to start off with the most common question I get, and that is, why can't I just have surgery and fix this and make it go away? What do you think? Well, the problem is multifactorial with this. One is that I could do the world's best appendectomy to treat your abdominal pain, but if your problem is a gallbladder, it's not going to do you any good at all. And so part of the problem is making sure that you have the right diagnosis. And unfortunately, um, you can't make a diagnosis of, for instance, the cause of low back pain on an MRI. Um, Jensen in 1994 looked at 98 asymptomatic patients, patients who never had back pain in their entire life, put them in the MRI scanner, and 60% of them had herniated or bulging discs, showed those films to surgeons, and 40% of those x-rays were offered surgery. They didn't have pain. So it's clear that what you find on MRI may not be what's causing the pain. And if it's not what's causing the pain, then it can't possibly get better if you operate on that. I use another analogy for the patients that if you had a tooth that was bothering you and a mouthful of cavities, taking an x-ray doesn't tell you which tooth is hurting. Exactly. So what the dentist has to do is tap on the teeth. The tooth that's tender is likely to be the one. If you numbed up that tooth and it made the pain go away, now you know it's that tooth that's causing the problem. Yeah. No matter what yeah. it looks like on x-ray. Yeah, I was going to say so, that, no matter what it looks like. Yeah. No matter what it looks like. So the worst-looking tooth may not be the one that's hurting. And so the and the dentist has a whole bunch of things to potentially be able to do before pulling that tooth. And pulling that tooth put, leaves consequences on the rest of the teeth. And so I think of back surgery the same way. If you operate on the wrong cause of back pain, it can only make it worse. And there are so many things that we can do before that to try and save the back from back surgery. And to, because once you get back surgery, it changes the forces on the rest of the back forever. And so one of the things that is so unique about being an interventional pain physician is the ability to identify exactly what the problem is and to treat it in a much less invasive way, what we call minimally invasive. So I'd use a different analogy sometimes as well. So if you had chest pain, unless you're having an acute heart attack, acute MI, you never see the cardiothoracic surgeon first. You see the cardiologist, and the cardiologist identifies where the chest pain is coming from, identifies if it's even coming from the heart at all, um, and then does the uh, minimally invasive evaluation like a cardiac catheterization and may be able to do a stent to open up that blood vessel to keep you from having open heart surgery. And that's an outpatient minimally invasive procedure. And it's only if you've got a treatment that will get better, might get better with surgery to bypass the blocked off blood vessel and you failed other treatments that you ever go to see the cardiothoracic surgeon. So in my mind, we've got all of this backwards. We've got people going to the surgeons with low back pain and an MRI instead of coming first to the pain management doctor to figure out what actually is causing the problem. That's correct. I just reviewed a chart. <clears throat> it's kind of it's kind of sad. She's a nurse, and she was sent to me for another opinion. And what had happened to her was the nurse got in the way of the patient. 
She was so well-educated and so connected. She knew where she didn't want to go and where she wanted to go. Ashley called ahead um, through another physician's, um, uh, I guess, recommendation, but uh, another physician's uh, knowledge, and arranged to go to that emergency department where the surgeon would see her, who has never seen her before, to do her surgery. So in other words, she missed step A, B, C, D, et cetera, exactly what you're talking about. She ended up having surgery. Now she can't go back to work. She's miserable. I don't know if they operated on the right level. I'm not sure they know. But she had a lot of hardware put in, and just like you said, above and below the surgical fixation site, that fusion site is added biomechanical stress. So, you know, the the parts above and the parts below are stressed out, not to mention the fact that your muscles and your soft tissues and all have just been displaced and the potential for scarring exists. So you, you nailed it. you got to have the diagnosis. That's one of our rules. You can't treat what you can't diagnose. And the sad thing is, is I see people who say, I've seen eight different surgeons, and you're the first one who ever laid hands on my back. You cannot diagnose a patient without physically examining them. You cannot diagnose them on an MRI. And please, listeners, if somebody's offered you surgery by throwing up an MRI film and saying, see, that's where you're hurting, run. That is not necessarily where the problem is. But with (laughs) interventional pain techniques, we can inject a small dose of local anesthetic on that spot and if the pain goes away, okay, that really is the cause of the problem. And then we can deliver medicines directly to that spot. And many, 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 many times, that's all that's necessary. Mm-hmm. So it's um, really critical to make the right diagnosis. So please don't think that surgery will fix you unless you've actually got a true diagnosis. And sometimes you can have a surgical problem, you know, that. Your foot starts dropping or else you have a clear neurological problem or a nerve compression. And that's a whole different story. And it does require a diagnostic uh, exam and some type of skilled assessment. It might be a test. It might be something else. But there are steps you take. And the first step is not just surgery. And we actually have minimally invasive spine surgeries that are available through a needle. We can draw out this material through a small needle. We can do endoscopic or through a camera, through a little tiny incision. And unfortunately, I see a lot of what gets called, quote, micro disectomies, maybe a smaller incision than the five inch incision that used to be made, but it still takes a tremendous amount of tissue away. So really trying to do the least amount um, to give adequate relief. You can always go back and do more, but you can't take it back. Once you can you've never take it back. Never take it back. Okay, so that, that brings us to the next question. Uh, good segue. So we're going to do these injections, and we're going to put medicine that uh, will decrease the inflammation, maybe the pain, maybe both, or, or be a diagnostic maneuver where we can actually find if that is the nerve or if that is the structure. And the next question that comes out of the patient, or as this individual uh, asked, how long does this last? How long does this shot last? How long does the epidural last? How long does the nerve root block last? You know, whatever it might be. How do you answer that? Well, I answer that there are two pieces of information we're trying to get. One is the diagnosis. 
The other is to try and treat it. And I think of these injections like putting a bucket of water on a fire. That bucket of water doesn't always put out the fire, but if you've got the bucket of water on the wrong place, it won't do any good. Um, and a lot also depends on what the cause of the problem is. So if I have a ring on my finger and I bang my finger, now I might not be able to pull that ring off. And the harder I try and pull it off, the more swollen it gets. If I can put the finger in ice water and let the swelling go down, I may be able to pull that ring off. But if the knuckle is too big, it doesn't matter how many times I put my finger in ice water, the Mm -hmm. ring is too small and it has to be cut off. So a lot depends on what the underlying problem is. How, How tight is that ring? How much bony changes are in the knuckle that predicts whether or not this putting the finger in ice water is going to help me be able to pull off this ring. And so I think of the same thing. If what you have is um, swelling that's causing the problem, then these anti-inflammatories work extremely well. If what we have is a problem of bony narrowing of an opening, that bone isn't going to get better with what we do, and that will help only temporarily. So a lot depends on what the underlying problem is. Yeah. Well, so what do you inject? This is another question. Um, what are you putting in there, and why are you putting it there, and does this medicine cause problems? I've heard if you give steroids, your bones go away. Well, we do use primarily local anesthetic and steroids, and the local anesthetic is what makes the diagnosis. Again, with that infected tooth, if I numb up the tooth and it makes the pain go away, even temporarily, then I know that's where the problem's coming from. The So the local anesthetic acts as a diagnostic. We use a time-release steroid designed to be time-release right where we put it. So I could give you steroids by mouth that go all over the body, and I would have to do them in very high amounts to be able to get them where I want them to go, and that does have effects all over the body. So steroids are made by your adrenal glands. You make steroids every day. That's what keeps you from turning into one big blister every day. So we have tremendous amounts of inflammation that go on just every moment of movement. I haven't heard put that way before. That's funny. Yeah. One big blister. And so one big blister every day. So your body makes steroids. They make, they're made by the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys. And the adrenal glands are constantly measuring how much steroid is in the blood to decide how much more to make. And steroids control the volume of blood in your blood vessels, the amount of calcium in your blood, the amount of calcium in your bones, the amount of sugar in your blood, the distribution of fat, the distribution of muscles, the texture of your skin, the texture of your hair. So steroids control a huge amount in your body. So when someone gives you a packet of steroids by mouth, they're giving you medicines that are having a tremendous effect all over the body. And we give steroids for um, inflammation, for asthma, for rheumatoid arthritis, for a variety of things. Our medicines are very, very small doses delivered exactly where the problem is. And so their effects are dramatically less than that. So um, when you talk about steroids, yes, there are lots of effects of steroids, but you have to take into account where they're delivered and how much is being delivered. And what we use are so much smaller doses than what you would be given by a family practitioner, for instance, to treat inflammation. So um, I think there has been an unnecessary and unwarranted scare about 
steroids. They are extremely effective anti-inflammatories, and as I said, the best we have. Yeah, if they're put on a target tissue, and it's specifically identified by x-rays, what we use, sometimes we use uh, ultrasound, but it's it's where we want it to be. We can dramatically reduce the dose. I tell you what I don't think works, and I don't endorse, is people getting these steroid dose packs for a low back injury or for a muscle strain or sprain. Yeah, they may feel good for a little while, but there's the dark side. It'll come back, and it just doesn't hold. It's much better to identify the target tissue and to put it there. Agreed? Absolutely. And once somebody's had a steroid dose pack, they've already used up the dose of st- a lot of the dose of steroids that we could use to specifically treat their problem. And so um, because, again, those adrenal glands can't tell the difference between the steroids the family practitioner gave you and the steroids that I'm giving you and the steroids that you make. So if they see enough steroid for a long enough period of time, they'll shut down. They'll cut back production or even shut down. And the steroids also allow adrenaline to work the way it's supposed to. So if your body isn't making steroids, then it's all that adrenaline isn't working the way it should. So here's the classic example. An athlete is taking steroids to bulk up muscle. It's a different kind of steroid than we use, but again, the body can't tell the difference. And then they, so they take enough that the adrenal glands shut down and then they stop taking the steroid. They're either having side effect of the steroids or they don't want to test positive for a meat. And they're not making steroids, they're not taking the steroids, they're not making the steroids, and then they're out on the football field and they need adrenaline to work and it doesn't, and they have what we call a cardiovascular collapse and people die from that. So it's really critical that um, that you not get steroids from multiple doctors. So I see sometimes somebody right. who'll see me for a, a low back pain problem. And they're also seeing an orthopedic surgeon for a shoulder problem. And they're letting the surgeon inject steroids. Well, we have no idea how much they gave. They, the surgeon gave the, the steroids blindly. So we have without any kind of direction um, other than, oh, I'll feel right here and stick it in. And so there's no idea where the medicines went. We don't know how much they got. We, and so we, um, it ends up adding to that total. And so now they just, ka-chink, lost another dose of steroid that they might be able to use someplace else. Yeah, you said so what I was going to really point out is you got to know what they're giving you. When somebody uses that word, that S word, steroid, you got to know how much uh, and keep track of it through the year, correct? Right. And the problem is is that, that doctors are really, really bad about using imprecise terms. So they'll say, I'm going to give you some Novocaine. Well, I guarantee you there isn't a physician in 2015 that's actually using Novocaine. It's a, it was one of the first local anesthetics. It has an extremely high risk of allergic reactions. Um, it's very short-acting. It's very ineffective. And other than in um, a very small group of people who use it for scars, no one in the U.S. today uses the actual drug Novocaine. They'll use lidocaine, they'll use bapivacaine, marcaine, no, uh, ropivacaine, um, any of a variety of medicines, but they use the term Novocaine. And in the same way, they'll use the term cortisone. Well, cortisone was the first steroid that was developed from cortisol, which is a steroid your body makes. But 
almost no one uses cortisone anymore because it's very short acting and we have many more medicines we've got triamcinolone we've got betamethasone we've got depamedrol we've got um, all sorts of steroids now but people physicians and patients tend to use the term cortisone to mean those in general and i think of it very much like um if you said, how many times have you heard I'm going to go make a Xerox copy of that? Well, I guarantee you it's likely they used a Canon or a Minolta printer, but we use the term Xerox to mean any time something's being copied from one paper to another paper. Um, like and Kleenex. It, Everything's a like Kleenex. Like Kleenex. Yeah. My father worked for a paper mill, and we were never allowed to use the term Kleenex because his paper mill made facial tissues from a different brand. And so <laughs> Kleenex is a brand and not the actual product. And so it is really critical that I think that physicians and patients use the right words to describe what was actually used. Correct. So uh, that uh, takes us into the next question. Um you know, one thing we want to say about steroids and be real clear on it, steroids are good and for the right reason, but we don't always have to use them. Uh, for example, uh, Manchikani and a few others have shown that some of these injections are just as likely to be effective without steroids. We can supplement with either local anesthetic or even just saline and get the same clinical outcome. We probably overuse steroids, and eventually we're going to be talking about regenerative medicine, and hopefully we're going to be getting away from steroids in the next 10 years, I would hope. Um, well, I think steroids have a role early on, but to keep getting steroid injections over and over and over again is a little bit like what Einstein said, that repeating the same action and expecting a different outcome is the definition of ignorance and insanity. And yeah. so... If somebody does an injection and they get great relief from it, wonderful, we're done. If somebody gets temporary relief, then we have to try and figure out is there something, have we identified where the problem is and is there a different way to treat it? And I'll go back to the dental analogy. You might use the filling to try and fix that tooth, but if you're still having pain, you've got a cap, a crown, a root canal where you kill the nerve that's going to the tooth. And maybe you do end up pulling the tooth, but at least you'd know that's the tooth that was causing the problem. Exactly. Well, uh, another group of questions that, that trended real high on the popularity of the controlled substance episode was, uh, what about controlled substances, specifically opioids? So, Well, I see, I see opioids as broad-spectrum analgesics. In other words, they treat a very wide variety of pain problems. And I, I'm going to take that back. They don't treat pain. They mask it. So when you're looking at a pain that is going to go away on its own over time like a broken bone, Opioids make perfect sense to support you until the body heals itself. If opioids are giving you pain relief to allow you to be able to do the rehab to get better, opioids make perfect sense. If what you're doing is trying to support somebody in a debilitated state so that or, or somebody who's hurting all over and you can't tell where the underlying problem is because there's, you can't find the fire because there's too much smoke. 
it makes sense to use opioids to decrease the overall pain to to leave what is left. And usually the pain that isn't managed by the, the opioids in relatively low doses is the part that needs to be treated. Yeah, and so I, I have a huge practice of opioids. I think they are excellent medicines, right. but they do not treat anything. And I hear over and over, oh, doc, you know, the, but the pain medicines make the pain go away. No, they don't. All they do is mask it. Right. And when the medicine wears off, the, the pain is likely to come back worse, just like being in a room with a smell. When you walk out of the room and walk back in, well, that smell didn't change, but your perception of it changed because you were out of the room for a while. And so it, I think opioids are very, very important adjuvants or helpful medicines, but they do not treat anything. And unfortunately, they're being used as a treatment because um, usually by doctors who don't have anything else to offer. And it's very interesting. New study came out. We always assume that these uh, this epidemic of opioids was coming from the pill mills or from bad doctors. Turns out that the vast majority of medicines are being written by primary care physicians who don't have another option. And again, as an interventional pain physician – I've got the situation. If you've got an infected tooth, I can give you pain medicines, but it's not going to get that infected tooth better. You need to see the dentist to fix the problem. And I'm the the interventional pain physician is the dentist equivalent in that analogy. Yeah. The, uh, the question always comes up about tolerance, dependence, addiction. Everybody wants to know, I'm, I'm not at risk to become an addict, am I? And I'm, I'm an addictionologist. I have my boards in addiction and I see that and I see the pain in. So I see this broad brushstroke and it, it's kind of hard to reel people's perceptions in, particularly with the downside in the media with these drugs and the downside with the just perception of these drugs. But no, you're not going to become an addict if you're using them under the watchful eye of a competent provider. You're not going to become an addict. And if you well, think I you have problems, you, yeah, but if you think you have problems, you can't abruptly discontinue these. And you may need more over time, and that's a concept of tolerance. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I think that there there is a potential um, effect of opioids of addiction. And it is similar to the risk of liver failure taking a statin. So if you had cholesterol, I would choose to have you do diet, exercise. But if your cholesterol is at dangerous levels, I may offer you a statin to try and lower your cholesterol and therefore lower your risk of heart attacks and strokes. However, that medicine has as its potential side effect liver insufficiency, liver failure, and death. And therefore, as a good physician, it's my responsibility and obligation to monitor that drug. So with opioids, they are very relatively safe, done the right way, but it's our responsibility as physicians to monitor how they're doing, to monitor their effectiveness. If they are not working to change treatments, just like I wouldn't keep giving statins to somebody whose cholesterol stayed up high, um, but also to monitor for that risk of addiction, and that includes 
making sure people are taking the medicines the way they're prescribed, keeping them on a very tight leash to make sure that they're not abusing the medicines, using urine drug testing to make sure that they're, the medicines we're giving them are the medicines that they're actually taking, pill counts to make sure they're not taking more medicines than prescribed. It is not to find the addict. It is to monitor to make sure that you're not getting into trouble and to identify early, just like that bump in liver functions where you start to see that the liver's not doing well. When we start to see these behaviors that can lead to addiction, because we're monitoring them closely, we can draw, bring them back. We can pull them back in and say, look, this is not right. You've got to be on the straight and narrow because taking these medicines other than the way they're prescribed is addiction. Knowledge of the consequences of taking them and doing it anyway is a sign of addiction. And if that's the case, then we need to change therapy. Yeah, it's called adherence monitoring. We need to do an entire podcast on this stuff, the pain, addiction, depression type thing. It's neurobiologically all interrelated. And it's a real snoozer to talk about stuff like that. But when you get into it and you talk about it uh, in very logical terms, people go, you know, uh, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I I feel like that sometimes. I can't separate my pain sometimes from these sad feelings of kind of the situational depression, anxiety that I have. But guess what? You know, neurobiologically, that's the way you're wired. And we can talk about this. It's going to be a whole podcast, I think. But my... I guess my take-home message is if you're being monitored and Andrew's take-home message by a competent, well-trained physician that understands these medications, rule four, um, you're not going to be an addict. You're going to be monitored to avoid that eventuality, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We try and we're, it's our obligation to make sure that you don't become addicted to it. And that's by close uh, competent monitoring. Do you know the, the actual numbers, uh, I, I, if I remember this correctly, of the short-acting opioids and the long-acting opioids, the uh, anesthesia pain people or the physiatry pain people are well under 10% of the prescriptions. But the rest of the prescriptions come from primary care, orthopedic, uh, internists, and that sort of thing. So if If somebody thinks they have a little bit of a problem with these medicines or they just might not be getting the relief they need, they need another avenue, it's a good idea to seek out somebody that's got some training in controlled substance management. So, well, I think I think we've kind of drilled that to the ground. <laughs> well, let, let's talk. Let's just stop for a second. And Andrew, I want you to shamelessly plug Painwise, uh, you, the book that you wrote. Yeah, actually, there were three of us. Um, the, David Cloth, Francis Riegler, and I, a couple of years ago, wrote a book called Painwise: A Patient's Guide to Pain Management. And what we tried to do, we realized that so much of what we do is just a black box. People had no idea what happened. Uh, My husband says you could go into pain management, you can check out, but you can never leave because the patients start with pain uh, pain management doctor and they never they never get out. So what we did were chapters on how do you choose a pain doctor, what to expect, um, uh, chapters on the anatomy, chapters on the medications, and then chapters on the various sorts of things we do, epidurals, facets, um, sacroiliac joint injections, uh, the radiofrequency, cryoneuroablation, pumps, stems, 
and then some topics like cancer pain and post-hepatic neuralgia and workman's compensation. We also have a glossary of medical terms and then a variety of pictures of some of the things that can be done from an interventional yeah. pain. It's easy interview. to read, too. Make sure that it's, you emphasize this it. is written for the consumer. This is written for the layman. Um, we tried very, very hard to put it in layman's terms so that the, so that it could be understood by the person without a medical degree. It is yeah. not a physician. It's it's not a physician book, though. Interesting enough, we actually have a CME, the Continuing Medical Education credits, uh, 40 um, hours of credits if uh, doctors will read the book. So if your listeners have their primary care doctor who doesn't understand pain management, this is a wonderful um, option for them. The book is $15. It's available on Amazon.com. Um, the, the, the CME is available through our um, publisher, Hathaway. And it is, uh, I think, a book for not only patients, but also for the non-pain physician. So yeah. um, I have a be, link on paininformation.com. If you go there, you can just go uh, to Helpful Aids, click on it, and there's the book. And you can you. link into Amazon there. Sure. Well, yeah, it's a good book. I've read it. Uh, I want my CMEs. I'll go get them. Then you have to, <laughs> you have to, all you have to do is sign up for them. All right, Jeweler Junk Time. Uh, you brought up a really, really good one. Uh, we were talking before the show. Uh, we just have to think of so much stuff. How about this one? You tell us the Jeweler Junk today. Well, it's very interesting. Um, a couple of days ago, I had a patient who came in and said, Doc, you know, my my oxycodone just isn't working all of a sudden. And I'm, I went back through her record. She had been on the same dose for a while. Everything had been stable. Pain scores were low, no problems. And now all of a sudden, over the last month, her pain medicine wasn't working. So the first thing we did is we said, okay, is it a different manufacturer? Because we do know that, that many of these generics – don't work the same. My patients have told me over and over again that this generic works and that generic doesn't. And I, I say it's a lot like um, buying soap detergent, uh, cleaning uh, clothes detergent. You know that 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 most people buy a brand name because it works better, and you have to use less. And that different generics work different ways. But so there's a concept of bioavailability. But we went back through a record. She'd been getting the same generic each time. And I said, have you added any new medicines? No, no, because we know there are lots of drug-drug interactions. That's what actually got me involved in this genetic uh, training to begin with, is that another patient who had been on oxycodone until and got great relief until her psychiatrist started on Paxil. It turns out that oxycodone has to be metabolized to its active form, oxymorphone, from an enzyme called uh, cytochrome P450 2D6, or 2D6 for short. And Paxil is a huge inhibitor of 2D6, which means that the patient doesn't make the active drug, even though they're taking the oxycodone. They're not making the oxymorphone. And so I asked her, is there anything at all that is in um, your medicines, anything you've changed? And she finally said, well, you know, my dad said I ought to take cinnamon. And I said, cinnamon. She said, yes, cinnamon. You know, the, I said like on toast. No, no, no. There's cinnamon capsules. 
And sure enough, cinnamon capsules are being touted now as an anti-inflammatory. So go to look it up, and guess what? Cinnamon is a a pretty potent 2D6 inhibitor. So she's off the cinnamon, and lo and behold, the levels of... we, We actually tested her urine. We showed that there was very low levels of oxymorphone in her urine, high levels of oxycodone, low levels of oxymorphone. And over the last couple of weeks... The oxymorphone levels have been rising and her oxycodone is working again. So the take-home message here is that anything over-the-counter or prescription can interfere with your medicines. And please, please don't start anything without discussing it with your physician first. Exactly, especially with methadone or some of these other very potent opioids. Please, Methadone's the big one. Yeah, roll it by. are told that they will be discharged from my practice if they start or stop any medicines, prescription or over-the-counter, without discussing it with me first, because I will not have my name on a bottle next to their cold, dead hand. Exactly, and I am... I have so few patients on methadone. I know you have some more. There's some good it's reasons a, to give it. I understand that. but It's an excellent, excellent pain medicine, but it has to be done the right way. Yeah, it's just so hard to monitor. And I don't, I don't know why. I can't get patients to understand that everything, even over-the-counter, like you buy a Tagamet over-the-counter, that affects methadone metabolism. 3% of the prescriptions for pain medicine are methadone. And 35% of unintended deaths are from methadone. So, tough drug, tough drug. But uh, Well, and it's funny. I've, I, every single patient, almost without fail, that came to be on methadone had never been educated on those potential drug interactions. Exactly. So education is the key. Um, and so that's the, the most important take-home message. Well, okay. Um, I guess we ought to round this out. And uh, you had some really nice thoughts about uh, bringing people back. I actually insist that my patients do volunteer work. We've got two programs. One of them is I actually have a, um, in one of my clinics, I have what we call a neighbor-to-neighbor program, that if the patient doesn't have insurance, if they will do volunteer work or have someone else do volunteer work for them, they get credit for every hour of volunteer work that's done for them or by them, and it goes toward paying their, my bill. The And so if they help and they get letters that say, you know, these are the hours that they spent at the animal shelter or these are the hours they spent at the senior center, mm-hmm. and then we take that off of their bill. The other one I do is that I ask patients to do volunteer work. And I say, look, volunteer first just one day a week, two hours. Do it over lunch um, because lunch is always a hard time for people to cover. Somebody wants to just to answer the telephone. But then I have them start working um, from 10 to 2. Again, it's late enough in the morning. They've got time to get their medicines on board, get moving, get warmed up. And that four-hour period doesn't exhaust them the way an eight-hour period does. It also, by the way, gets them out of the house during the soap operas, which people can get really (laughs) addicted to. Um, And it allows them to socialize. It shows a work history. So when they, even if I could wave a magic wand and make them pain-free, they can't do the things they used to be able to do because they're deconditioned. So it gives them a chance to get up, get going, meet people, develop a work history, um, network. 
Um, these are people they're going to be meeting that may someday need an employee, and they've shown that they're dependable and that they're helpful. And so even if it is simply running, I mean, taking a note from one place to another in a school or answering the um, the school phone or working, I've got people who um, answer the phone at an auto shop um, or help with some of the billing in a program, an auto shop, or Take whatever you're passionate in. If you like sewing, volunteer at a sewing shop. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the sweep in a hair salon. It, it just doesn't matter what it is you're doing. Because you're doing it for free, if there's one day when you can't do it, oh, well, you're not. nobody's paying you. Um, but it also just gets you out of the house. It gets you doing something. It gets you recognizing that there are other people that are in a worse condition than you are. Yeah, really. Volunteer yeah. for a for a hotline. Volunteer for a soup kitchen. Volunteer at a senior center to to read to somebody um, who can't see. There are just so many things that are available. Some of them are more organized than others. Um, most newspapers have a community calendar that says this is what's available. Get involved with a support group. Just get out of the house. Exactly. Well, that's, uh, I guess, a good place to say um, happy holidays to everybody. And it's going to be a good year. We're going to make this a good year. And I uh, appreciate you coming back on, Andrew. Every time you're on it, I learned something. I think everybody learned something. So once again, greatly appreciated. My pleasure, Hans. And let's keep that pain at bay. Okay, we'll do it. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, Once again, it's great having you on whenever you're on. It adds a lot of light to a very tough subject and hopefully is very informational. I just can't get away from her explanations of some stuff. Sometimes I quote her regularly. She's a... a brilliant woman. And every time we have her on, uh, we find that uh, we get some great questions. Please go to opinioninformation.com. Give us some questions, and we're going to try to get them answered. But anyway, thanks, and we'll look forward to our next visit. <laughs>